Okay, so good morning. So I was telling Ryan, I do actually speak and teach for a living a bit, and um, this is actually more nerve-wracking than 2,000 people in front of you. And he said, really? I said, yeah, there's two big things here. One, I've got to come back and see these guys like every week for the rest of my life. And two, I'm actually talking about the Word of God. Right? When you talk about the Word of God, there is a bit of a heavy burden there. So, okay, so we're talking Ecclesiastes. And as Tom said, so far what we've got out of it is that everything is meaningless. So I thought it would be great if we could just use the rest of the time to enjoy life, since it's all meaningless anyway, and we just move on. We're good with that? No? Okay. All right. This is what I want to do. We're going to change it up a little bit this month. Um, each, each week, we're actually going to be talking about where Ecclesiastes fits. First, this week, where it fits in the Bible and, and why it's an important part of the biblical narrative. Then where it fits within the books of the Songs of Solomon. And then where we're at, chapter 6, we're actually at the Ark. We're halfway through. Uh, we have 12 chapters. We're at chapter 6. We're right at the top. Last week, we're going to talk about where chapter 6 and kind of the general area fits within the entire book. So that's going to change us up a little bit because, quite honestly, when I was looking at chapter 6, I'm going to tell you, I felt disappointed. I was looking at the calendar, and I had to keep going back to Ryan's calendar that he sent out. And this is going back to February. And I think, was it was it chapter 4 or chapter 5? And I thought chapter 5, what Jason just did, would just be great for me because it was about injustice, if I recall correctly. Was that the one on injustice? Is it 4 or 5? One of those was about injustice. And I thought, well, that's what I do. You know, I cause injustice everywhere I go. That would have been perfect for me. Um, but uh, lo and behold, I ended up with chapter 6. And if has anybody had a chance to read chapter 6 yet? Okay. It's not the meatiest chapter. There's 12 verses. There's not a lot. So I thought, you know, we're here at the middle. Let's go ahead and just kind of see where we're at, get some situational awareness, add some perspective into our year. So let's start by reading chapter 6, because the Word of God does amazing things when you read it and don't just talk about it. Chapter 6, there is an evil that I have seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind, a man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity, or hevel. It is a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with life's good things things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he, for it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it's not... It has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than that man. Even though that man should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good. Do not all go to the one place. All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite or his nefesh is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool, and what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity or hevel and a striving after the wind. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is, and that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity, and what is the advantage to man? For who knows what 
is good for man while he lives in the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow. For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? So on its surface, that's kind of discouraging, isn't it? It's all hevel. It doesn't matter. But there's more to it. So let's first look at the story arc of where we're at in the Bible in terms of wisdom. So we're going to go back to Genesis. We always go back to Genesis. And I'm going to paraphrase here. So if I get stuff kind of biblically slightly out of order and correct, any of you theologian uh, guys, please don't pummel me too bad until after. So we start in Genesis. And in Genesis, God creates the world. And he creates the beasts of the field and the animals and the, the birds and the fish. And then he creates man and woman. In his image, he creates them. And he invites them to co-rule. He invites them to rule together, not one over the other, but to rule together along with him and to rule this world. And what does a ruler need to rule? A ruler needs wisdom. He needs to know the difference, or she needs to know the difference, between good and bad. Right? This is Genesis. This is what he established for us. This was what our life was meant to be. And then we know the rest of the story. We know that, in fact, we reached out and we took the forbidden fruit. But that forbidden fruit was from the tree of wisdom of good and bad. And this is where we need to pause. If that tree had wisdom, and we know that we need wisdom to rule, then what's the problem? Other than the fact that God told us to do it, wouldn't it be a good thing? And here's where we need to take note how this fits into the, into the arc of the story is that God was clearly giving us wisdom. In fact, I think we would all argue that he gave us a set of knowledge, gave Adam knowledge straight out of creation. I don't think Adam had to learn for the next 15 years how to talk and think and do math and all that stuff. He knew. He knew enough that pretty quickly he could name the animals. Uh, God told him what to do. God was giving him wisdom. And we know that God's wisdom is what leads us to life. And so it's the fact that we actually saw a different wisdom and we reached out and we grabbed it for ourselves. And so we grabbed that wisdom, and what did it bring? It brought death. It brought mistrust between Adam and Eve and between them and God. It brought, ultimately, us being cast into the field, out of the garden, with the beasts. And then we began to act like beasts ourselves. This is the beginning of our story. And then you fast forward, just skip through the Bible, and you'll find story after story where there's a man, and he's the promise. Or maybe he's the promise. And your hopes begin to go on him, if you don't know the end like we do. Your hopes begin to go on him that, well, maybe this is the one that God promised, our salvation. The one that he told Eve about. But each time, that man fails. He looks promising and he fails. Abraham listens to God. And he leaves uh, Ur. Right? He, he goes to a new land, takes all of his people and possessions. And then he fails with his wife, Sarai, when he actually takes Hagar into his bedroom and has Ishmael. Um, you go through the Bible. We won't go through all those. And this is where we get to Solomon. So Solomon, if you look at 1 Kings chapter 3, it's pretty amazing if you read that portion about, about Solomon. He's a king. He's our next hope, right? And think about where Solomon lies. God just told David in this previous generation that your offspring will rule forever. 
that I will set up your son's throne for eternity. So who do you think Solomon thinks he is? Solomon thinks he is the promised one. Solomon thinks that he is the Messiah. He is the salvation for Israel. And think about it. Solomon gives him amazing riches. He is the richest man, according to the Bible, richest man ever. He's the wisest man ever. He has the most wives ever, at least any man that bothered to record that. 700 wives, 300 concubines. So he, I, I'm sorry guys, he had the most sex ever, I would imagine. All right. This is the man who has the most. And it looks pretty good. In fact, in chapter 3, he actually, he's already king. He's already done some decent things. He's discerned between good and evil. And in a dream, he's worshiping at a high place, burning incense, burning uh, sacrifices, and he's sleeping that night, and God presents himself to Solomon in a dream and says, anything you want. And what does Solomon do? He chooses wisely and asks for wisdom. And God says, oh, that's a good choice. I'll give you that, and I'll give you more. This is looking promising, isn't it? He wakes up, he knows it's a dream, and he goes on to build all this stuff. I think you've read the stories. At one point, silver is worthless because there's so much of it. There's so much gold, he's basically wasting it on things. Do we get the point? We get the glimpse of what God was calling us into in the garden. This is what a wise rule looks like. Unprecedented peace, unprecedented prosperity. Every man had its own had his own tree, had his own garden. This is a, a glimpse into what it should have looked like in the garden. Except that we know that there's another side, right? And the other side is all of Solomon's failures. So not only was he the richest man ever, but in the first verse of chapter 3 where he actually asks for wisdom, it gives us a big hint of the darker side of Solomon, where he says, where it talks about Solomon was doing good things, except that he was worshiping at the high place against the command of his father David. So we already know he's in sin. He's already actually going against what his father said. And in fact, we know that he had already, in that verse, it says that he made an alliance with Egypt. And he married the Pharaoh's daughter. And we know if we go back to Moses, what did Moses say about foreign entanglements? Just like George Washington. No foreign entanglements, right? And yet, that's one of the first things recorded in chapter 3, right before he asks for wisdom. So not only do we see this amazing hint of what it could look like, we immediately see that the fall is going to be really big. So he has the wives, the entanglements, the slave labor, he's worshiping idols, and then his legacy is a son that is really wicked, who takes over and does some pretty wicked things. So God gives us everything in the garden. He gives us a job. He gives us a woman. He gives us a hope. And he says that, and he does give us wisdom. And when we take it for ourselves, take our own version of wisdom, we invite death and destruction and mistrust into our lives. We could have co-ruled with the Father. Instead, we try to rule over each other. This is where we're at in the Bible. This is the arc of wisdom in the biblical narrative. 
And right now, Solomon is talking about this. And we're going to next week talk about his three books and where it works um, and, and how those books fit into the actual the whole biblical narrative. But right now, this is how important wisdom is. And what we're seeing in Ecclesiastes is the failure of wisdom, the failure of control. So with that in mind, let's go to the first few, for a few verses of chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 1. Coalette the teacher. And by the way, quick, remember what Hevel is? Hevel is not just a vapor. Um, it's a vapor, it's a smoke, and it's translated meaningless. But it still has value. It's, it's not worthless. It's just you can't grasp it, right? And Coalette is the, is the character that's speaking in the book. An author wrote it, introduces, and then does a conclusion, and then he basically turns it over for the middle parts to Coalette, the teacher or the preacher. So Coalette says there is an evil, a grievous evil, a burden on mankind, an illness, and then gives two explanations. He says in verse 2, A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor, so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires, yet God does not give him the power to enjoy them, but a stranger or foreigner enjoys them. This is vanity. This is a grievous evil. So God gives, so what Colette is doing is he's saying, he gives a man everything, everything he wants. And who do you think he's talking about? Who had everything they wanted? Yeah, Solomon, Shlomo. Absolutely. So he gives us stuff, but then some men, he doesn't give the hearts to enjoy it. And this is not an inclusive all men. I think this applies to all men, but he's not making this claim. I think we've all heard about miserable rich men. Have you all heard about miserable Howard Hughes? Wasn't he a miserable rich man? Couldn't enjoy his um, wealth at all, right? But what about us? Do you have things that you don't enjoy? And it's kind of a loaded question because Apple sells a lot of products, right? Based on the fact that the one that we just got a year ago, we no longer enjoy the way we did because the next one is better. This is a sign of depravity. This is, this is a, a, I don't think it's a curse from God, but this is a curse on man. That most of us, if not all of us, struggle with actually enjoying the many blessings that God gives us. And this is discontent that destroys the soul. So to make it personal, uh, when I was 26, I was director of security for a $600 million corporation. I should have never been there. I had them fooled early for some reason, but they promoted me. And my job, I lived in Columbus, Ohio. I'd moved there. I had a house at 26. Uh, I worked. I had a nice office. It's kind of funny. You know, I, I, I struggle with office space on and off these days because I have my own business. But I always remember my door was like 12 feet high. It felt like something from a bad devil movie, you know, like the devil's advocate with the big doors that go into this obnoxious office. And I traveled all over the country where I wanted to go. And I I traveled on corporate jets and I worked with people who were considered important. And when I went to New York City to work in our design center or do things there, I had pull because of my position. And at home... I was miserable. I was that quintessential story of a, of a young kid who had earned a high rank and a high position and a good pay and had things um, and couldn't enjoy them. I didn't know God. Uh, he knew me, but he definitely did not. And thankfully, he did not give me the heart to enjoy what I had. So this is why I can confidently say I think this applies to most of us. 
Let's go on to chapter 6, verses 3 through 6. And this is where he talks about if a man fathers a hundred children and his days and years are many, but his soul or nefesh is not satisfied with life's good things and he has no burial. And there what, what God's talking about is either he has no burial, meaning that he's never memorialized, like the people around him don't care, or it could be that he's upping the ante on the example here and saying that he lives forever. Right? Regardless, both of those are kind of a big deal. He says that if that's the man you are, that a child who comes out of the womb dead is better off than you. That's a big claim. And he's saying that a man who accomplishes much, even with long life or immortality, his life is meaningless if he can't enjoy those good things. And this kind of sounds a little bit heathen, doesn't it? Like if you can't enjoy your stuff, that, that life is worthless. That's what, that's what a hedonist would say. A hedonist would say that if it feels good, do it. Live in the moment. But he, he's, I think we understand in the bigger arc, that's not what he's saying. And I think that uh, Paul got this right. And then we're going we're gonna to cut this out. Paul got it right in chapter 4, verse 10. Because he says that he learned to rejoice the Lord greatly. Not that I speak from want, for, what I, for I have learned to be content in whatever circumstances I'm in. I know how to get along with humble means, and I also know how to live in prosperity in any and every circumstance. I have learned the secret of being filled and going hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. So this may not be a direct reply to what Colette is saying, in Ecclesiastes, he may not have him in mind, but it is a direct reply, right? And he has the secret. Paul has the secret to how to enjoy the things that God gives you. So let's close this out, and then we're going to go to, to uh, questions. When I read and reread chapter 6... The first few, few times I read it, like I already mentioned, I thought, are you kidding me? There is nothing here. I'm just being honest. I was like, golly, what am I supposed to say? I didn't like what God gave me. I could not enjoy it, right? <laughs> One more example. Um, and then I realized that what he's saying that it, is that it, his word should call us to explore um, our powerlessness. And our powerlessness should always lead us to consider God and God's power and what God can do for us. This is, this is, a, a, this is a chapter, and there are many like this in, in Ecclesiastes, that is talking about our lack of control, our lack of power, but that there's still a glimmer of hope. There is a hope, and he gets to it.